0: Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Prateek Patel is a dietitian and sports nutritionist working with some of the highest level athletes you can imagine. While the honor and prestige of rubbing elbows with these freaks of nature has its appeal, Prateek admits that the job is not without its challenges. But that's what has forced him to grow and evolve into the passionate professional that you'll hear today. Here it is, episode
1: 535.
0: Peek, welcome to Power Athlete Radio. Our mutual friend Brett Bartholomew, introduced us and connected us, and I understand you two were uh, fraternity brothers. So if you got any dirt, we'll we'll save that for the end. But welcome okay. to Power Athlete Radio.
1: Where'd oh, you guys go to college? Where uh, Where'd you guys go to school? When's to K State. K State.
0: Yeah, for undergrad, man. Do you've you've had a, a illustrious career, been through college into the the NFL, and we, I'm sure we'll get into. Some experiences there from your perspective as a strength and nutrition coach there, and now we're we're in a venture that I, I'd love to learn about, man. So take us quickly through that career, and we'll have plenty of questions for you to to highlight your porf- portfolio.
2: Yeah, so you know I did my undergrad at K State in dietetics and knew that I wanted to do something sports related, whether it was just working in a gym, personal training, doing nutrition, or working at a training center. So I went through the whole process of undergrad and an internship and really uh didn't have many opportunities when i moved back to kansas for jobs and some people have mentioned in the field they're like look if you can't get work as a dietitian if you can't get anything with university or training center make yourself a little bit more marketable if you have a background in you know kinesiology exercise physiology so you could potentially become a strength coach so i thought you know that's g- good information so i went back to kansas state got a master's in kin did some research, did some coaching. That's where I first started to learn about coaching and how this all blends together. Like it's it's not just nutrition; it's not just exercise. It's everything that each individual person is going through. I also had the opportunity to work with the men's basketball team there for a couple of years, learning about what is life really like for an athlete. You know, obviously they you know they think nutrition is important, but not everybody's compliant. I mean, even to this day, most athletes at every level are very non-compliant. And there's a variety of reasons for it. But just understanding that i had a a huge amount of passion in one area and i was trying to get all this information and throw these bullets at these athletes that have tons of information thrown at them from the dozens of people that they work with and they're not compliant for a variety of reasons so everything that i was telling them they were nodding their head and saying yeah this is good you know oh yeah i'm gonna these are the goals and i'm gonna reach them and it's gonna be great whether it's weight gain weight loss improve energy sleep whatever and then they just go mess it up the second they leave the facility and then you come back in the next day kind of just like hey what you know how are you doing how did x y and z go like oh man uh and then you know things happen life happens school happens so that was a good eye-opening experience for me to understand like look i think nutrition is life and death but these kids they don't care about it
1: why is all. that is it yeah. uh is it education is it uh just naive is it uh, the curse of the gifted where You know, regardless if if they eat Ho-Hos and Twinkies or, you know, uh, like a nutrient-dense diet, they're still going to play at the highest level.
2: Yeah, I I think it's all of it. You know, it's just based on where that person is and how much they value it. You know, and what kind of communication style do you bring to the table? Like, how do they learn? And how do you figure out what's important to them and make what they're trying to achieve and what you're trying to help them do, which can be a big piece of helping them achieve that a part of their daily routine in life. So if you give them this long list of things to do and it doesn't fall into what they're habitually have done over the past year, three years, 10 years to get them to this point, it's going to be a hard sell for them to completely change their behaviors and their habits if it doesn't align with what's easy for them and what they feel like they can actually do. So a lot of it has to come internally from them. You know, you see it all the time, strength coaches, dietitians, everywhere across the country at every level, they know the importance of it, but you still have the same mistakes that are made high school, college, pro, like the most basic of mistakes, nobody's hammering down because sometimes we just don't work backwards to figure out how can we just meet these guys at this specific level? And so sometimes, yeah, these guys, you know, I've worked with a handful of college athletes that, you know, over the course of training blocks, they would put on muscle and they would lose body fat and they would feel better. And I know these guys are eating pizza, ice cream, they're drinking three to four nights a week. So then it goes back to, it's like, all right, well, <laughs> how can you continue to be supportive and push your agenda while they're not following it, but still seeing and making progress. So then again, it's really just understanding how can I get through to this kid and get him to trust me on a one to one level. And then I can start layering and calling them out and then they don't feel um, uh, there's a negativity or stigma associated with it because you have developed that relationship. And that's where I feel the coaching side is so important, as opposed to if you approached from a practitioner, like a medical or health or dietetic side, because they have perceived thoughts about what they should be doing, but there's also perceived thoughts about the persona of the people in those positions, as opposed to, like, you know, as a coach, a freshman or a rookie, you know, if if their position coach or their head strength coach goes to them, be like, hey, you know, we need you to do this, this, and this. They're like, yeah, I'm going to do it because this is the guy who's going to transform me or take me from this level to that and not realize that there's so many different things that they need to be doing in all these different areas that will, like, Work together with the strength and conditioning piece to help them get where they are. So, I mean, there, there's no one right answer, and it. it's tough because you still have these same battles with a lot of the people I still work with, and they're all dealing with different things.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you find that? Um, I mean, you're really talking about a very specific population, like a very tip of the spear, like the smallest sliver, which is you know high-level uh, Division One professional sports, and then also you know obviously the NFL, which is an even smaller pool. I mean, uh, is there application outside of what you learned working with those athletes for the global bigger market, or is it something like, you know, when you work with the world's best, it becomes like pretty much anything works, but then when you start extrapolating out into a larger population, you really get to see and almost stress test, uh, you know, the approach that you're taking.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, when you start going higher up the ladder with the quality and level of athlete you work with. It's not necessarily trying to get them to be perfect in every single area because they're just things that they're gonna be doing better than everybody else. And it's mainly it's a physical thing in their skill acquisition and their ability to apply it and make decisions in their sport. So, you know, if, if I was working with Saquon, it's like physically, I'm not gonna change a single thing about him. A lot more of it is what's going on between the ears. And but if I'm working with, you know, say a high school athlete or a fifty year old lawyer who's trying to you know, reclaim his body, then it's like the things that I'll be able to present to them from a you know, nutrition training perspective are gonna speak much more in terms of volumes and benefit as opposed to like, I can't change an NFL athlete over the course of uh, a short off-season training period and then in-season in terms of their physicality. Like that stuff has to be done on their own when they have four to five months of time. What I wanna do is just understand where they're at mentally what is it that they need to do day after day? Because, you know, if you're going through a losing season, your psyche changes and, and you know what that's like. You know, when things are going well, you know, you kind of roll it, you know, testosterone's high, everything's great, but when you're not winning, then you go into self preservation mode. And their ability to want to comply to everything that you've put in front of them to at least help them get through the season or stay healthy starts dwindling and going out the window because now they're thinking, Oh, it's a it's a it's a contract year. You know, I haven't signed my extension oh, I'm, you know, I'm going into free agency. So then it's like, okay, let me keep them mentally dialed in and engaged instead of working on just the physical. I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why we had some success with the training program we put together, why a lot of the athletes really respected it. And, you know, it's why we were kind of kept around for four years. It's, it wasn't just all in your face all the time. It's like, we need to really adjust what we need to do for these guys individually. You know, what's going on on the field? How's practicing adjusting? What are the loads in the game? How do we complement what we do from a weight room and training perspective and then also bring to the table these health and nutritional interventions to at least just keep them you know, healthy enough to get through a season while minimizing that injury risk. So it's not just prevention prevention. It's like this is the stress we need to apply. This is how we need to recover from it. And this is what we need to do for each individual guy.
0: Was it normal for your position? You were helping with nutrition and the weight room. Is that a normal thing for the NFL or is it siloed up?
2: No, more often than not, I wouldn't say it's necessarily siloed because you would, you would want every single department to be communicating regularly because I mean, there's things that just happen, roster changes, issues that happen, not, not only day to day, but hour to hours, you know, somebody woke up with a crick in their neck, like, all right, well now we're going to pull them from practice and they're not going to be lifting. And now that, you know, they're not going to be doing anything for three days, we need to make sure the nutrition can kind of be adjusted to be able to support what they need to do to get better. Um, but I, I think they're, There are more of these roles coming about and a lot of people have had multiple roles, so to speak, going back years ago where you didn't have a full performance department. So your main person could have been your trainer was also helping out, you know, in the weight room, but also the only person available to do diet consultations and kind of do some type of assessments there. But now it's you have these performance departments that are getting bigger and bigger, which again, it's good and bad. There's no one right way to do it or wrong way to do it. I think if you have the major boxes checked in terms of do we have somebody who's writing programming? Do we have you know somebody who's able to assist with return to play? Do we have somebody who's monitoring data? Do we have somebody overseeing nutrition, hydration, sleep, this and that? And then you have the whole medical component and is everybody talking? So it's not you know 11 to 20 people. It's like, do we have a small group of people that are very good at what they do, but also know about the backgrounds of the other specialties? Because if one person's talking about you know what's going on in the weight room, and you have somebody in nutrition who has no clue what the eccentric portion of a movement is and why you know that's important to know during off-season training because it causes that much more muscle damage. Then it's like, well, how can you complement and provide the appropriate nutrition before training, after training, to take care of the adaptations that you're looking for if you don't even know what's going on? So being in the weight room is really important for two reasons. One, I knew exactly what the guys were doing. Like they would see me every day. You could have those informal discussions because we just didn't have enough time with them to sit down and like, Hey, we're going to do an hour long assessment. They don't want to do that. They want to get (laughs) out the door the second their obligations are done. So I could see them there and know exactly like, Oh, I know what the workouts are. Obviously I'm coaching a position group or a couple in the weight room and on the field. You know, I know what the loads are. I know what's coming up. So what we provide to them as a team and then individually, uh, is as tailored as possible. Now when you get 75 to 90 guys in the building, all hell breaks loose. And those plans you put in place uh kind of get thrown out the window if, you know, a quarter of them are hung over coming in and a quarter of them slept 4 hours or less and you know, things of that nature, but then you just have to kind of be
1: on your toes and adjust. But then you did uh coach in New York City. I'm just saying, <laughs> those guys in the, uh, like New York, oh my god. I used to uh when I played for the Eagles, I used to go up every Monday night And uh, hang out with some of the Giants, like Jeremy Shockey and those guys and uh, a bunch of the the Yankees. And I used to go out with those cats on every Monday night. And, uh, dude, those guys – I can't imagine playing in a place like New York. Like, so many distractions. Like, compared to Green Bay. I mean, like, uh, (laughs) dude, I can't even imagine. Um, The – like, so – like, let's boil down the approach a little bit. So, like, if a guy comes in, I mean, are you are you talking about macros, or is that like, uh, you know, total caloric load? Or are you just being like, hey, I need you to get like a fistful of meat on this side and kind of like balancing it that way? I, um, for me, we had a a, a team uh, dietitian everywhere I went, and I remember sitting and talking with them, and where they were, where and where I was was a bridge too far. I just remember mm-hmm. being like, ah, uh, like. Um, you're recommending that I eat a bunch of whole grains and I tested positive for gluten intolerance, so that doesn't work for me. Like, this is what's worked for me. So, like, uh, my rookie year in the NFL, I worked with uh, Maro De Pasquale, and Maro did all my diet stuff, and I followed an anabolic, uh, kind of a metabolic diet, and uh, did great, and then all of a sudden I'm talking to the nutritionist, she's like, well, you know, where are you going to get all your vitamins and minerals if you're not eating any grains? And I was like, you're the wrong person. I'm good. I'll just steer over here. And so I think, like those tailored approaches, and I think guys are way more sophisticated now, but uh, like getting blood work done, figuring out where you're you know, micronutrient deficient, and more importantly getting some food allergy testing, was huge for me, and I did that, I still do that. I've done that for the last 20 years of my life. And being able to dial it in that way, and have that information accessible, um, when I presented that to these guys, they were like, thought I was, my head was gonna pop off. They're like, you know, why are you doing that information? I'm like, well, if I eat this, my stomach gets bloated and I gotta go to the bathroom immediately. So, but yet every time I get on the plane, you pump us full of pizzas and a bunch of ho- like ho- like uh, subs and stuff. So I think things have probably progressed a little bit farther uh, in the last couple of years, or it just feels like it has. So I'm just wondering, like, what's the approach that you take with the athletes?
2: Yeah, it, it definitely has gotten a lot better. And, you know, the tough thing, too, is just like with strength and conditioning, when you go through your schooling, you don't go to become a strength coach. You go to get a degree in can or ex So some people might not even get any ability to coach on the floor or even learn how to do a year long training cycle or program it out based on sport or sport need. And then individually, if you have uh, regressions or injuries or things of that nature, the same thing with dietetics, you go through dietetics to become a registered dietitian, but there's zero sports application. And even then the recommendations that you have, I mean, let's be honest, they, they aren't good enough to meet the needs of the average standard American, which is why 70% of the country is overweight or obese because it's not. Tailored to each specific situation. So when I, if a guy comes to me, and it's not just one of those like, hey, coach told me to come see me. I'm like, well, you know, don't come with me with that crap because you're only going to be five percent in, and you're not going to want to follow and change. You know, not only your diet, but your your habits and your behavior. Like, you're going to go home and drink, you know, six to seven drinks. You're going to stay up all night, and you're going to come in with three hours of sleep and wonder why you're gaining weight. It's like even though you're eating 1,200 calories, I'm like, look, the the underlying factor isn't getting assessed or addressed, and you're trying to change it in the middle of the season you know, half-assed, but I like to do as, as much of a full assessment as possible because everybody thinks like, you know, they, they, they want to improve their nutrition. They want to change their body composition. So, oh, it's just diet only. I'm like, yeah, it's a big part of it. But if you're failing on these other ends, you're not managing stress. You're not getting proper sleep. You have issues going on on the back end that I don't know about. I could, you know, you could be following, you know, a really good tailored approach based on what they need based on, you know, training volume and cycle and the appropriate caloric distribution, what have you. But a lot of people aren't getting the results and there's a variety of reasons for it. So are doing a full assessment, you know, at least me getting into their shoes, like this is exactly what they're going through. Like this is their schedule. We know what it is because they come into the building. What are you doing outside of it? Like what exactly is going on? Like these guys have families, they have kids, wives, You know, now everybody's got a brand, they have social media appearances, they're taking them out into the city they're exposed to all this different stuff they're up till you know midnight 2 a.m i'm like okay i need to know all this stuff because if you really want to achieve something you've got to give up something you know if, if you're too far from your goal and you're going to keep messing around outside here like you're not going to be able to take the steps to go there so as you mentioned like you know assessment includes everything including diet history it's how they manage stress what are they going through like psychologically like what are you dealing with like what is your sleep like are you are you assessing it or wearing a wearable. Do you have any idea what's going on? What type of environmental things do you deal with? Like what's quality of water? What's the air at home? Um, how much light exposure are you getting? Because all these things play a role with just overall health. And it's not just fixing one area. It's like, we gotta try to look at all these different areas. Same thing we do, you know, when we're with the giants, we had a great, they have a great relationship with Quest Diagnostics. So we do blood work. We do sweat testing. We do, you know, food allergens, looking at the appropriate IG tolerances. And seeing is there something there to be able to say, hey, yeah, you told you told me you have issues with eggs, and it came up on your test. Like, all right, for your protein option in the morning for breakfast, we're going to get you something aside from eggs. So then it's understanding like this is what they're going through, and then just doing the general calculations. So we do, you know, everybody is body comp testing on the guys, so you have a more of an idea of where they're at, and then maybe even doing. Some what do you guys, part- guys use in- for? Uh,
1: are you guys using DEXA? Is it a uh, Bod Pod? Like, how are you guys? Yeah. doing
2: Yeah. <laughs> So my first year there, they ended up getting a bod pod. So a DEXA would have been great, but as you know, you got to have the right space in the facility. You know, sure. it's 120 plus K. Yeah. And each each state has different licensure laws on who can use a radio, um, an X-ray machine. So in Jersey, you had to go through a two-year course, you know, pass the test to be able to be certified to use the machine. And I think it was like 25 to 30,000 for the schooling on that. It's like, you know, what if I, what, what if I get fired after year one and then they got to start the process all over again? So sure. I like DEXA, but it was out of, out of there. We had a bod pod we use again in terms of monitoring. I think it's, it's, it's fine. It's kind of better than nothing. But what we started to do was we got more in depth with can anthropometry, looking at skin folds, circumference measurements, bone breath measurements and trying to quantify more of each individual person, as opposed to, yeah, we throw you in the bod pod. Oh, we want all of our linemen under 25%. And then if they're not under 25%, then, you know, we're going to chastise them or they need to get under, not realizing like, look, you have so many different body styles, even within the position, even within like tackles, like tackles are all different. Guards are all different. Centers are all different. There are some similarities, but they're really different. And these guys have different, you know, skeletal mass sizes, which is ultimately, the biggest determinant with how much muscle mass you can put on your body. So not every six, five guy is going to be 320 pounds and walk around like, Hey, I'm comfortable at 320 pounds. That's why you have these tackles that can barely keep on 300 pounds because Hey, they have a very small amount of bone mass compared to some of their, you know, counterparts and they've maxed out the amount of muscle mass that their frame can hide. Like, yeah, we can get them past 300, but it's all going to be fat. And then you look at them distributed wise, do they have longer torsos? Do they have, longer legs do they have longer femurs like where is this going to get distributed and is that advantageous for this guy to do so so when you start looking a little bit deeper you can you can make better decisions upon training nutrition instead of saying like yeah everybody got to look like you know uh jake long or nate Solder. you know these guys are just freaks of nature because they are different
1: did uh do you think that certain individuals have like a, I i guess maybe a genetic ceiling for the amount of muscle that they can carry on their frame
2: yeah and this has been studied really extensively abroad it's now slowly making its way into popular american sport so what they they've kind of found is they've they've measured everybody from you know sprinters to gymnasts to rugby players to soccer players you know everybody all over the globe and what seems to be this sweet spot is you know you can you can all all these measures are all indirect measures so the only way you can really figure out muscle mass bone is slice somebody open as a cadaver Sure. But for the most part, if you can calculate and estimate skeletal mass, then there's an upper ratio of, depending on ethnicity, for Caucasians, it's about 5.0, 5, five to 1 muscle to bone. For you know your, your African-Americans, for your, I guess, biracial type people, it's upwards of 5.5 to 1. Now, if you're juicing and if you're you know, geared up and you're, you know, pro bodybuilder IFBB, then you're going to be able to shoot through that ceiling for a reason. But again, what's in, you know, I've been measuring guys for the past three years. And when I do the measures, as opposed to other people, it still holds true. Like you have this range and generally you might get some outliers, but it still holds true. Like very rarely we'll, we'll, we won't see guys over that 5.5 because they might have bigger skeleton frame sizes. They might have more muscle mass. But when you when you get down to that ratio, it kind of still holds true, because um, without the use of performance-enhancing drugs, it's harder to get above that threshold.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So with, um, I, re- I remember when we got the Bod Pod, Texas Herd Tell Me Story, we, uh, we put everybody in, and we actually created an award for the guy that had the highest percentage of body fat. We took a potato <laughs> head and put it in a little box. And uh, I think like, I want to say it was like probably like 29% was the highest. And then I was the lowest. Uh, I was eight. So I was the only dude over 300 pounds they'd ever tested under under 10% body fat. So I was uh, 308 pounds. And I think I was 282 pounds of lean muscle, which fucking blew the top off of the, all their tests. So at that point, I was the only dude over 300. And a white dude too on top of it, which they fucking blew their minds. Um, yeah. But also- which I think I think, it's, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I dieted like a motherfucker for it. Uh, I was eating like uh, ground beef and rice for like three weeks and totally <laughs> cut water. Well, I wanted to fucking look great and win. Uh, we what? had a ten thousand dollars pot on it. Damn. So, I mean, for ten grand, I'll fucking suffer for three or four weeks. D- didn't you say some guys brought like a roll of quarters in there? Yeah, you could cheat. It. Trey Thomas yeah, was, uh, cheat it. took took a roll of quarters and was shoving them in his butt crack, like like rolls, <laughs> and then was wearing his tights because it improves the mass. You know, like it's it like because it it can you know obviously roll of quarters you know on the front the side right. Uh, no, I think he put it in his ass crack and I think it was a couple rolls and uh, it helped him He because everybody was mortified that they were going to get that. And I want to say it was like Hank Fraley or like Jamal Jackson ended up uh, uh, getting that Bod Pod Award. It was fucking hilarious. It was some of my greatest work. But yeah, no, we we were pretty funny with it, man. Like, uh, as you know, um, just certain body types and I think what's happened, what the, the problem is, is that the there were dudes that I played with and I'm sure you saw this too where you saw them with their shirts off and you're like, This dude looks awful, but goddamn, this guy's a fucking athlete. Like, could move. And then I remember there was one dude they brought in uh, on, like, I think they brought him in on a Thursday. They signed him, and I watched the dude bench, like, 585 for, like, an easy triple on the bench. (laughs) This dude was fucking massive. We went out on the practice field, and he was standing straight up defense alignment, and I hit him, and he tea-kettled, like, three plays in a row. They cut him before practice ended. The guy was like, hey, uh, come with us. We're afraid you're going to get hurt. I mean, this dude was every bit of 6'5", 300. I mean, he was so fucking strong. So it was so interesting when, uh, you know, the body type and even the more awkward dudes tended to be really athletic. And you start noticing things like, you know, that guy's kind of bowlegged and pigeon-toed and he's got real wide hips. And that guy just gives me a fit, you know. Or, you know, you'd see a dude turn around and he looks like he's got like uh, like a you know Chevy 350 in his pants because his ass is so big, you know. And uh, it just really just made me realize. And whenever people ask me, I'm sure you've seen this and you'll agree. Uh, the NFL is this like land of outliers where like you take genetic freaks and these, and these guys that are just have such a unique skill set and then you put them into this competition and I'm always amazed by like what comes out. I mean, you're talking about some guys that are just freaks. I mean, uh, uh, Saquon Barkley is a great example. I mean, that dude's legs look like fucking tree stumps. And normally a dude with legs that big is usually not that fast. Like all the real fast dudes I saw always were kind of like high calf, smaller leg guys, but that dude Mm -hmm. is like Barry Sanders, you know, just the outliers.
2: Yeah. You know, there's no sport on the world like football where you have the biggest discrepancy in diversity of sizes. You could have a five, seven 160 pound returner, and then you can have a six, seven, you know, 355 pound tackle. And then everybody in between, like you don't see that anywhere else in the world in terms of just size and then mass, which is which is awesome. And, and to your point, like everybody wants to fixate on strength and body, you know, like, like athletes are, aren't bodybuilders. Like Bodybuilders make the worst athletes for a reason. Yeah. Like well, <laughs> people be, need to get that out of their head.
1: <laughs> well, uh, the uh, the analogy somebody gave me once was like a bodybuilder's glasses or the, the muscles a lot like glass. It shatters real easy. And unfortunately, um, you know, it almost seemed like uh, the more bodybuilder-esque that guys were, the shittier they tended to be. So, I mean, I was never, uh, like, if a dude came out and had, like, a huge chest and huge quads, I wasn't necessarily very nervous of that guy. It was the dude that you kind of, like, walk, like, waddling up and you're like, oh, shit, dude, this guy, like, looks awkward and weird and, like, just has, like, a whole bunch of, like, you know, real long arms, kind of shorter legs. just it's like the the strange uh, anthropometrical ratios. Those are always the guys where you're like, holy shit, this guy's going to be give me a fit. So yeah. it's uh, it, it's just it with um, with this many outliers, and I think like this is the part that uh, would bang me in the head repeatedly for being a strength and performance coach in the NFL is you have these guys that have like everybody's bought into a different level in terms of the training and the nutrition and all the intangibles, but the thing that's universal. Is that uh, you know guys can play, or if they couldn't, they weren't there. So they're actually succeeding in spite of all the other things. And it's not until they get in the job for a couple years, and maybe they get injured or they start feeling the pressure a little bit, that they all of a sudden come over to your side and are like, and I'm sure you run into that guys in their third or fourth year, like, hey man, how do I how do I stay here longer? What can I do? I got injured. I didn't recover like I used to. Um, is there a way to kind of get an intervention earlier, or do guys have to go through that? Uh, like those trials and tribulations before they kind of come over to your side of the house and are like, dude, help me. I think a lot of it has to do with it really, it, it starts organizationally with how
2: much support are they providing the players and how much is that communicated to the players because you might have. A specific team where you know a rookie comes in or a new free agent spends two weeks with the team, goes through you know practice, goes to meetings in and out, and doesn't realize like oh we've got a sports psych on staff, we have a sleep you know doctor on staff, we have a dietitian on staff. So sometimes it's a lot of places like hey we're just going to check these boxes because the NFLPA mandates that you provide these resources. Some of it could just be like look we know that it is important, but teams are still winning in spite of guys doing what they should be doing. As you know, I mean these, some of these guys could just be running on three hours of sleep, can be hungover, drugged up, whatever, and just go out there and ball because they just mentally, they can get dialed in when they need to. They know exactly what they need to do. And they're just physically and skillfully superior than who they're going up against. So, you know, over the course of 60 minutes, you can win your one-on-one matchup and just dominate somebody while not doing everything right on the back end. But I think, you know, organizationally that's important. You know, and not to say you have to be in their face every single day. It's like, hey, somebody's gonna be here. Able to answer questions, you know they'll come up to you if there are any concerns or they want to bring something to your attention. Um, part of it could just be that, you know, nowadays the college levels are investing so much money in their facilities, and I mean it's even more so. Like you have access to more at the college level than you do at pro, because every pro team is going to be different with how much they want to provide their players you know are they providing with good quality meals or is it kind of just the bare essentials and the bare bones and you have a very small performance staff but college I mean, these power five schools are just massive so they're exposed to it a little earlier the tough thing is you're dealing with 110 plus guys that are there for the entire year that have jam-packed schedules that are trying to fit in lifts with practice and meetings and tutor and, and exams and they got to study um now with the nil now they're probably worried about you know appearances and all this other stuff so trying to get them to do what they should be doing or the proper assessments is i can't imagine what it's like to be on a performance staff now you know over the course of the next three to five years is going to be very interesting yeah what, so play
1: what do you think about that with the college i mean it's um i mean is it i mean we did a podcast on it and i have my um i have my opinions but thinking about like In terms of like uh, maybe preparing those kids for the professional life, I mean, I don't don't know, man. I go back and forth like, uh, you know, is it better to expose them to this stuff early on so they're more sophisticated by the time they get to the NFL? They've already built brands. They've already understand all that stuff. Or is it better to just kind of like, you know, keep them almost in the dark a little bit, let them just focus on their school and their sport? Because, uh, you know, playing football in college and then also just trying to get a degree from Berkeley was like a full-time job. Uh, just to compete in that arena, I can't imagine adding up all this other information. I mean, social media and like, you know, this and trying to sell yourself and create this brand. Like, it just feels overwhelming. And I don't know if, uh, man, I feel thankful that it wasn't even an opportunity because like an idiot kid, I would have probably been like, oh, yeah, sounds great. Um, but it just feels uh, overwhelming. Um, and I want, you know, you, you see it in the NFL, you know, all of a sudden here's your full time job and you're just trying to manage all this stuff. Add school on top of that and, you know, uh, you know, football, which isn't necessarily a full time job. So I'm wondering if it's uh, those kids are going to get an advantage or it's just too much like noise for those kids.
2: I could see it, you know, going both ways. It's not like I want to take a hard stance and say, oh, this is the worst thing that ever happened to them. If they're responsible and can handle and manage their time and a lot of schools are they're hiring people to oversee this. So, you know, in terms of people getting jobs, great, you know, if you're the person who's going to be in charge of brand management and helping each one of the kids kind of navigate this and providing the financial information for them to become secure, you know, because now they have the opportunity to become financially independent before they turn 21. What was it? Saban said the Bama quarterback deals are now going into seven figures, which he hasn't even played a snap yet. Uh, You know, good for him. Happy for him. Great. Let it, you know, cloud your judgment and think you're too big. Like you still have to produce and play. And the, the expectation is they need to get to the playoff and win a championship. Sure. So, so in my mind, it's like, look, if you don't have a very well, a very solid program, a coach who's been well-established, who's developed, you know, quote unquote, the word everybody loves culture and the accountability isn't there. What's to say your highest profile players who might not agree with a coach or a staff or school or whatever, who's making three million dollars this year you know which is insane to me good for them well i don't want to practice today okay and now before it was oh you punish them with workouts or you make them stay up or you do x y and z then it's like well is it that they covet most oh playing time well they're making millions of dollars and they haven't even played a snap so what the fuck do they care so i think that for some of these kids that go to these mid-level power five programs that you know yeah you have to take these kids on because you need you know you got to have your stand-up guys you gotta have your shitheads you gotta have your ballers now it's like what happens when you get put in that situation where the kid just doesn't want to do what you tell him to do and now you can't punish him because well, his moneymaker isn't you
1: it's well, him I, it's like the nfl like these uh you, like you know the deal i mean um i thank god i never had this conversation but i've heard coaches have this conversation with other guys like grow the fuck up you're a professional this is your job. And I've, you know, I've I heard that on numerous occasions, Bill Belichick was great. Like, this is what we pay you to do. We're not paying you for any of this other bullshit. Do your fucking jobs. And I think now, um, you know, in college, they coddle these kids. I mean, you know, like, hey, uh, you know, we always used to joke that they'd be like, uh, school is number one, football is number two, you know, kind of deal. <laughs> and uh, like, now they have a situation. I don't know if it's better or worse. I don't know if I'd want that. Where the coaches would be like, "This is your fucking job. You're getting paid to do this, to go out and win games. I don't give a fuck about any of this other stuff. Go out and do your job." So, I mean, if anything, they're like, "Hey," um, because I bet you a lot of these contracts these kids are getting are contingent upon playing time and how much you're in front of the you know from the TV. And it's like, you screw up, I'm just going to bench you and you're going to sit and you're not going to make a dollar of that. I wouldn't give these kids a guaranteed contract in any way. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, "Hey, I'll pay you X amount of dollars." per game based upon how much uh exposure you get on that game and i would pay based on that and like and that's the pressure that any coach needs like hey you want to make that money you got to get on the field i'm the gateway now do what you're supposed to do do your fucking job and like now it takes it from like it it like the day that we started getting paid was the day that all of a sudden like i mean uh, high school football was a blast you go to college it was still a lot of fun um, you know, you obviously know you're there to do a job in school and there's the trade for it, but the day you get to the NFL, all of a sudden you're like, man, I make no illusions about this. And people are like, oh, is it great playing play in the NFL? I'm like, it was probably the best job I've ever had. You describe it like a job because it was, you show up. What do you think? It was like a, a party like you see on these, like, uh, uh you know, any given Sunday movies. Yeah. No, it's a legitimate job. You show up with a briefcase and a lunch pail and a hard hat and you go do your fucking job. And, um, I'm, I'm kind of bummed for these kids a little bit that, they don't really like that age of innocence is gone. That 18 to 22 years old where you can fuck up and do some stuff and like, you know, not be under the microscope now with like social media and all this other stuff. And, and them putting this in, man, like these kids are in that spotlight from 18 years old on and the pressures are there. And I don't know if they're, or maybe they are old enough to deal with it. Look at, you know, NBA basketball. So I don't know. I'm a, i am I go, I flip flop on this thing all the time and I'm like, God, I just, I'm sorry that they even have to make this decision.
2: Yeah. I think the thing that, you know, I experienced when I worked in college from, you know, 2012 to 2017 or 2010 to 2017 was even back then there was just such an arms race to do any and everything for the athletes because their days are scheduled out. You know, you tell them when to wake up, what to eat, how to recover, how to lift, you know, when to go to school, what to study. You know, some some of these places are probably doing the homework for them. You know, whatever. You know how it goes.
1: No, I, they, I went to Berkeley. That shit did not fly. I had to legitimately do all my own shit.
2: Yeah, yeah, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> but uh,
1: <laughs> maybe it's different now.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but now they just don't learn any autonomy. Like they don't develop the skills that they need to to be able to be successful at the next level because so much has already been done for them. You know, so, some of these kids are smart enough to figure it out, or they're just uber talented that they, they might have a couple bad years and, and they'll be able to just make headway. If they're smart enough to realize like, yeah, when I get to the NFL, the game isn't faster. It's just so much more mental and harder. You know, the guys aren't super strong cause you don't, you know continue to gain strength. And when you leave college, go to the NFL, you actually regress cause you don't have a full year long training program put in place and it, you play more games and the games are more intense mm-hmm. and the mental toll starts adding up on top of, you know, multiple injuries now over the course of more years playing football where what we see with these kids is they just don't know how to adapt. They don't know what to think. And the, the biggest thing I'll always say, and it's probably never happened to you, or you never dealt with it, is you see all these videos of what these guys do in the offseason, like, oh, you know, these crazy training programs and this and that. And I'm like, the biggest missing piece for these NFL guys isn't what they're doing training-wise. It's mentally they're not getting themselves prepared and into the schedule, into the season to figure out, all right, if these, things start going wrong, I need to adjust one or two things or i just need to make sure that my plan is set in place because the second the mind goes it's gone like as you know and you know everybody's worried about oh we had the greatest off season we're we're training we're doing this this and this but how much time is being put into all those other important variables that have a huge impact on how these guys end up performing and how their health is going to overall impact i mean you know the biggest thing in the news right now is simone biles Hmm. and you know obviously she's doing what she needs to do and She can do whatever she wants to. She's more successful than I'll ever be good for her. But at the same time, it's like when you don't have the processes put in place to be able to adapt and overcome the stresses of what being a pro athlete is, which is not easy. You know, it's it's never going to be easy. Then you're just not going to find the success you need to, no matter what you bench or how fast your 40 is or whatever you do training wise. And I think that reverberates back to college is you're doing too much for these kids. And then now the whole floodgates are open with them being able to get money and sponsorships and deals left, right, front and center, that they're not getting a chance to actually develop their mindset and become somebody who can overcome adversity. Cause you know, my three to four seasons in the NFL, basically we we're out of the playoff race, you know, three to four games in. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, what does it mean to these players who have to go through this entire season knowing that, Hey, it's all for naught, And we have to start all over. Same thing with the coaches. Same thing with all of us. So I think that's one big missing piece that people don't think about. And it's like, it's bl- glaringly obvious. You know, we had three or four first-round draft picks that ended up getting cut from the team mm.
1: because they yeah, couldn't you figure have it that. out. Yeah, you and th- have like,
2: that. that blows my mind. Like, we – they, not we, but
1: – Was this Pat they, Shermer?
2: No, this – well, my first year was with Coach McAdoo. Spags took over they didn't retain anybody on the staff except for us on the performance staff. A couple of the assistant coaches got interviewed. Pat took over two years. I mean, I like Pat a lot. It was just a really tough situation with the end of Eli's career and the beginning of Daniel's. And we, (laughs) we have like 50 or 60 million in dead cap money in 2019. You know, it's like they're scapegoating these coaches and everything starts at the top for all these organizations.
1: No, I mean, you can uh, change out coaches and players all you want. Yeah, the culture starts with the ownership and like, how they how they like treat shit. players and how they spend and more importantly, like all of that permeates. Uh you know, Pat was uh when I was at the Eagles, Pat was our tight ends coach and then he went on to our QB's coach. He used to come and drink beers with us um, mm-hmm. in you know during training camp. And I always liked Pat and I like Spags too. He was one of our coaches as well. Yeah, uh, but love
2: Spags, love Pat. I mean Pat was a Michigan State
1: guy too, so that was yeah. a nice connection, you know, for us. Yeah, the uh but uh, like whenever people, um, you know, and you you hit it right out of the park, uh, the entire like winning uh, like culture starts with the leadership and more importantly, the owners. Um, you know, I played for owners like Jeffrey Lurie. I played for, you know, obviously, uh, um, you know, the Hunt family and all this stuff. I mean, it's it's really interesting. Like if the owner gets to the point where they're like, I don't give a shit what it costs, we're going to win a championship. And you feel that like in every f- sector of it uh, all of a sudden and you don't feel like they're just cutting corners to try to like save a dollar where, you know, there's certain times like when I was at the when I first got to the Chiefs, uh, I felt like everything was a um, like bottom line decision. Uh, you know what? We are going to cut lunch and just give them sandwiches because it's the like everything was bottom dollar. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden uh, Lamar Hunt passes away and his son comes over and is like. Fuck it, we're billionaires. We're going to win this motherfucker. And they bring in like a you know new facility and this and like all of a sudden went to the point where they were you know just spending money and winning it. And they brought in Andy and all of a sudden you see what happens. So they had the money to spend, and you get organizations that are just so inherently cheap uh, that like that permeates on the players. And like you know like the the Giants when they won, I mean that was not. I mean it's New York. Like fuck, it's the biggest team in the world. I mean people say the Cowboys are, but I fucking hate the Cowboys, so I can't say they're the biggest team. <laughs> Uh, the New York Giants, I fucking hate the Cowboys. Um, the New York Giants, I mean, that's the Big Apple. And uh, it's it's such an interesting culture thing when like when the team is bought in and the ownership is bought in and they bring in coaches and they, like, show a little bit. Like, like you know, like you said, dude, they, they first scapegoat the uh, strength staff. Oh, you know, like, all of a sudden you'll see the, the strength coach get fired. And that's how, like, the head coach buys himself another year with, you know, the indication that obviously we're in good shape so we got to fire these guys. So they're always a sacrificial lamb. And then the coach usually gets fired the next year and the ownership's like, Oh, we're we're going in the wrong direction. Well, yeah. you hired these motherfuckers. Didn't you talk to them? Didn't you know the direction? And you gave them two years. Who can figure that shit out in two years? Especially in that uh, you know, the shit show with, like you said, with Eli Manning at the end of the year. So yeah, Pat, who's a good coach and a good dude, got stuck in a real bad situation.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, him and Coach Mac both, um and I, I like Joe. You know, I think Joe's a very, very smart guy. Yeah. Um he's a great teacher knows a lot. He, he's kind of like the CEO where he sees everything and he wants to make sure every single aspect, and I'm sure obviously he learned that from Belichick and Sabin. I mean, sure. the two best ever to do it. So, you know, you're, when you're dealing with that, you, you learn a ton. And if you have those chops to want to become the leader of men and create a program, which I think, you know, obviously wish them a lot of success and still have worked with a handful of those players um, connect with some of them regularly still, but. It, it, it's tough because having been on the in, outside now, inside now, looking at things from the outside, when you see stories about what's going on in these other places, it's like I know exactly what's going on. And it's funny how fan bases are so tied to the teams that they love, and every year they convince themselves like this is gonna be, this is gonna be here. In my head, I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Look Probably, at the Cowboys fans. Yeah, 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 no,
1: no, no. Look at the Cowboys fans. Every year, this is our year. (laughs) Dude, ESPN is
0: feeding like Das Prescott, pushing Uh, Mahomes for MVP. And it's like, first of
1: all, what did I tell you? Uh, That spiral fracture, that dislocated broken ankle that he had, uh, I played with probably five dudes that had that exact injury. So what happens is their foot gets stuck, they get hit in the leg, and it it basically dislocates, they pin it. Um, Zero out of those five ever came back to do anything of substantial. So like when I saw that I was like uh, I wouldn't invest and then they go pay him a bunch of money and I'm yeah. like dude it's it, it's like the the running back who held out they paid that I'm like you don't pay running backs you like every year there's some kid that comes out of college who's no name who like is like the top running back and, and rushes for the most yards in the NFL and I'm like why would you pay running backs you like the last running back to probably get paid was Emmitt Smith like that was the last dude like if not you just run those guys through so I'm just so amazed at like. Uh, as uh, having played and then, you know, obviously watching it now, I'm like, I, I just am so amazed by some of these decisions these guys make. And maybe there's something we're not seeing in terms of branding or market, or, you know, they send out focus groups and they love this person. So it makes sense to pay him for their fan base because it's not about winning.
2: So. No, no. At the end of the day, it's all, it's all about money. And that's why some of these teams, like you said, they won't shell out, you know, a few hundred, hundred thousands to potentially make back millions to billions and as you know, in any industry, like if you, if you want to be successful, you got to spend some money to make a whole lot of money and it's worth it with anything that you end up doing, you know, yeah. with me, when I work with athletes, I'm like, you want to get better, you know, we'll work together, but I'm not free. You got to pay me, but you're going to end up better off in the end. And you're going to say, shit, I wish I would have done that two, three, four, five years ago, because now, you know, I'm armed with the appropriate knowledge and habits for life. And it's like, yeah, that's the point.
1: Yeah. It's, um, Man, we said like uh, I always felt bad for guys that had to go play at uh, Cincinnati, or like uh, like my buddies like. So Bobby Williams went to play played Cincinnati, and he used to call me and be like, "Dude, it's fucking awful." Like uh, uh, there was a rip in my socks, so I went to go get new socks, and they charge you all of a sudden. You you know you get your check, and they're like charging you sixteen bucks for socks, and he's like, <laughs> like just nickel and dime stuff, and uh, like that doesn't build winning teams and cultures, and like it's just uh, you know players' perception. Um, so if. Uh, you know, obviously you got a, had a pretty cool deal with the Giants and got to see the inner workings of the NFL. Now that you're standing on the outside, uh, you know, is it easier to work with these guys and to kind of be able to shoot them straight without having to wear the, you know, the crest on your chest and, uh, you know, be a, a employed by the team in such a way? And now you can almost be impartial and be like, hey, I'm working with you. This is my perception and I don't have to, you know, temper it with what the team wants.
2: Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I, I thought one thing I wanted to do when I was working with them, in that situation with the team was just never really BS them or sugarcoat things. Obviously there are things that you can and can't do. And it, you know, it's NFL policy, it's NFL P- uh, policy, it's organizational policy, and you do as much as you can, not in the gray area, but just try to manage the biggest rocks first. But now I think the, the benefit of it is I know exactly what they're going through. So you have a lot of people that work with NFL athletes in the off season but how many of them actually been through seasons, you know, losing seasons and know what the shittiest of the shit feels like and all the mental associations with it, how everybody acts, all the, the ch- chit chatter coming from the players, from the coaches, from the administration, from, you know, upper management and the owners. I mean, unfortunately, we had the three to four worst years in history of organization. So I experienced all of that <laughs> and I know what it's like.
1: Yeah. The uh, uh, <laughs> like walking around, like I, I, I remember. uh it, like, this is so weird, but like, you would lose a game, and like, all of these coaches. And I used to joke that I never wanted to be in a foxhole with any of these motherfuckers. Like, they would lose a game, and all of a sudden, you walk down the hall, and they'd be like looking down and didn't want to talk to you. Like, all of a sudden, like, the, uh, the you know, like, just it was amazing the staff and like how a win and a loss can change the entire like aura of a building. All of a sudden, you win, and everybody's high fiving and excited. And I'm like, we're like, nobody's going to go undefeated. Like, I mean, what, they're one team in history. The 72 Dolphins went undefeated, yeah. right? I mean, so one team in history. Everybody's going to lose a game, and you guys act like, you know, and, you know, dude, you, you went through actually like multiple games in a row being lost. Like you lose two or three games, and all of a sudden you're like, you know, the parking lot's locked, and you got to park outside and walk in. I mean, like just crazy <laughs> shit where we're like, holy shit, we lost a game. We came parking in our own parking lot, which happened to us in the, uh, the Chiefs facility. They just locked the fucking doors away. Well, you should have won, John. Yeah, the yeah. They're, they're like, oh, if you would have won, we'll, we'll let you park closer and you won't have to walk a quarter mile to the facility through a fucking multiple gates. Like, Keystone Cops bullshit. You're like, what am I, in Super Troopers? And um, that's the hilarious part of the NFL that, like, these guys, uh, like, you know, not necessarily the players, but the staffs, like, live and die. I can't imagine, uh, like, just the... Like the, you know, people talking out the side of your mouth, the depression and just being around that with that many losses. Holy shit. And it's tough
2: because when you think about it, I mean, winning is, as you mentioned, everybody is happy. I mean, because there is a strong association with increased dopamine, increased testosterone. And when you're on a winning streak, like you play better because physiologically and mentally, like that's what's connected and that's what's happening. So when you lose, you get the opposite. And this has been studied. Like, can you imagine what it does to somebody's manhood? players and coaches when you're just losing, 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 and you can't right the ship and it just continues to happen, you know, you don't have the same work outputs or power outputs. You have detrimental to physical performance, mental performance isn't there. And what is, you've got to figure out something to kind of right the ship. So everybody's like, oh, we got to practice harder. We got to drive them into the ground. So now you throw another stress on top of that with that, with the inability to recover, it's like, shit, you know, who has the right answer to write this ship? Because again, if you're not winning your division, you don't have a wild card shot. Then, you could still win seven, eight, nine games and not make it to the playoffs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a uh, it, it's a hell of a deal. So then, how like how do you manage that stuff? I mean, um, you know, uh, like when you're when you win, everybody's right. That was like the thing I noticed. I'm like, you know, like when we win the game, that was the best call. If you lose that exact same call, is the worst call. So I wonder, in terms of like the health and performance staff uh, with that, you know, with that situation, you know, is the head coach down asking like, you know, are these guys getting meal deli- And that was another question I asked, are, um, are dudes getting like meal delivery? Like, are you working with, uh, uh you know, was the team have somebody set up that was uh, like doing like custom meals for these guys, or are you just kind of hoping that they, Hey, this is what I want you to eat. And then we're just, you know, relying on them to make it happen. So, yeah. Like,
2: luckily now most places have their own food service outlet, whether it's you hire your staff you have a head chef or your food service director who oversees everything and you crank out the meals or you work with a third-party company to come in and provide meals so with the giants we worked with flick they have about six to eight nfl accounts and they they did a phenomenal job so they were already put in place when i got there they had been there for you know handful of years and that, that staff was phenomenal like from the players that I worked with that had bounced around to a handful of different teams. When they got there, they're like, Oh my God, the food is better than any other place. And it wasn't because uh, we were spending two to three times as much, you know, it's about a million to $2 million per year because the giants fed everybody. So that was an organizational thing. Mm. You know, one of the benefits of being a part of one of the blue blood organizations that started the NFL was, you know, Mr. and his family, take care of the entire staff. So everybody gets, you know, access to breakfast type things. Uh, players get full compliment, same thing with coaches. And then there's a lunch for everybody as well. Mm. So the quality of food was there because the chefs we have put in place were just great. And so for me, it's just working on tailoring the menus based on what does training though look like? What time, what is the time of year? What is temperature? What is, you know, X, Y, and Z we can provide to these guys to help facilitate. Um, just making sure that they're getting what they need to be ready for training, but also recovering adequately. And then what we would do is we would pull guys off to the side if it was brought to our attention or they came to us to say, Hey, I need you to just kind of based on what the menu is like for every, every day, every week, this is what I'm trying to achieve instead of me going through the line. And, you know, cause all the food's good. So they're going to overeat. If nobody kind of keeps them in check, it's like, this is what I'm trying to do. Or these are my requirements. Cause now I'm vegan or Hey, I, I have these allergies. Like I can't eat X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, like, like you said, I'm getting distended, I'm bloated and I'm going to the toilet. It's like, all right, what we do is, you know, we kind of calculated out. These guys are on this plan. These guys are on this plan. We'll put their food aside. So we won't, they just walk right up, grab it, they don't have to think about it. So it definitely has gotten better in that regard, but because the roster turns over so much. So my first year is 2017. Last year was uh, at the end of 2020. There were three guys left on the roster mm-hmm. from 2017. Wow. So you spend a year learning about a guy, you do the assessments, understand what is opportunities to get better physically. You do your movement you screens, games body that. comp.
1: Like you, you can't you, win games in that. No, there's no way. Yeah,
2: you can't win games with that. So you you learn everything about him, what he likes, what he doesn't like. So you build that rapport. You know what the communication style is. The trust is built because they like you. So if, if they like you, they're going to trust you. Uh, they like the program. They like what you offer them. Boom. Injury, cut. Start all over from square one with the new guy. And... <laughs> It's tough because, you know, you might have 35 to 45 new guys every single year that you're going to have to build a relationship with from ground one. As opposed to college, it's like you might have this guy for five years before he leaves. And then, you know, you start over with the new batch of freshmen and you start over a new batch of freshmen and you get so much time with them.
1: When, uh, when we were in, in Philly, uh, Andy Reid hired, uh, you know, Andy Reid likes to eat, shocker. Um, but he hired this <laughs> chef that he really liked. And I ended up making buddies with the dude, and uh, he was like, "Anything you want me to cook, you just bring it in in the morning." So, because uh, he had a badass smoker, um, Andy liked, you know, Andy liked to eat. So I'd bring the dude like a turkey. I would go and get like a prime rib. I would just bring like the craziest shit I could find, and just bring it in in the morning, drop it off, and then I would take it home at night. And this dude made me like the most epic things. He would make me like Thanksgiving like a uh, feast at least once a week. I'd bring him like a you know, 12, 14 pound turkey. He'd make it. And like I'd bring it home. And uh, I always had dope food with that alone. And people asked me like, what are you doing? I'm like, ah, the guy said he cooked for me. And he was like, dude, I make the meals. But he goes, it's no big deal to throw extra stuff in. And uh, man, that guy, like I was more than happy at Christmas. I gave that dude a huge tip, like a Christmas gift. But. I mean, that was a pretty nice deal. And I remember uh, getting into like the meal service thing and, uh, you know, they would like send us huge boxes in the mail and then you kind of put them in your, you know, in the plastic things. But uh, man, nothing was as good as that guy cooking all that stuff. I still think about that. If I could have one wish, it's not a nicer car, a bigger house or anything else. It would be like somebody, like when I opened the fridge, there was magic food in there. Oh, I thought
0: you were going to say a person in there.
1: Well, a person (laughs) person in there who you open it up and just hands you just like the most amazing stuff. And you're like, the macro's already counted. It's just like... Eat it like that would be that would be my definition of success. Like people are like, oh, like what's the one thing you knew you were successful when there was a dude in my refrigerator just handed me all the meals? (laughs) That would be the best. I mean, one less thing to have to worry about and think about. I mean, you
2: think about how much time you spend. You know, what should I eat? You know, when am I going to cook it? What time am I going to eat it? I mean, you know, we're obviously eating multiple times per day, depending on what kind of regimen you're on. I mean, it it takes hours to to figure all that stuff out. Yeah, no,
1: I mean, just just the shopping, like uh, usually, like. Saturday morning, um, I'll go hit, like, uh, Costco and buy all of our stuff. And then we hit Whole Foods on the way back and, like, pick up all, like, because uh, I got the kids, um, like, all the fucking kids stuff that they like. And um, and then it's, like, uh, Sunday I get up uh, before I go work in the shop and we like, meal prep. And then on Wednesdays I cook again. So I try to, like, cook in, like, you know, different batches. And, uh, man, it would just be so nice if, like, I'm like, oh, it's Tuesday. I've eaten, you know, cold chicken for my third day in a row, or you know, <laughs> then I cook skirt steaks on Wednesday, and I'm like Friday. I'm like still eating cold skirt steak, you know, or or whatever it is. I cooked t-bones last night, but oh, uh, it's dude. Uh, that would be as I look back as being a professional athlete. That would have been probably the greater marker of being a professional athlete, other than that, in a car deal. So I had a car deal with Mercedes, and they gave me a different Mercedes every month. That was the best. These are the cool perks.
0: Now we. Well, now they got minivans. So you just missed out. <laughs> Teak, let, let me jump on John's. He said his definition of success. What would be yours? I saw the recent Instagram post where you explained your your progress through your career, salary, and then you named a bunch of shit you wasted money on. So maybe that was an eye for success then and you realize
1: It was shit, uh, shoes, clothes, and electronics. I, I was peeping on your Instagram too and I just laughed my ass off the amount of money I've wasted too. So
0: Yeah, man. So what would be your, your definition of success?
2: And I think, you know, as you get older, you should change. Like you should change every five or six years. And that, that's the goal. When I think about myself, when I first started out, you know, over a decade ago, and I kind of cringe. I'm like, oh God, that was me. And that's what I thought. I was very fixed mindset. I wasn't a great practitioner. I, you know, put my foot in my mouth so many times, all I cared then was trying to make a name for myself, or I wanted a specific title or work with this team, or I wanted to hopefully win all these games or these championships. And, you know, that... A lot of people think like that. It's just the young, naive mindset. And then you think about the things that you didn't have when you were a kid growing up. You know, and I grew up in a great family, you know, very middle class. My parents owned their own small business for 30 years. So, you know, hard work was instilled upon us, myself and my sister. But I was like, oh, I've always loved cars since I was a kid. I've always loved shoes, you know, always loved watches, things I never really had the opportunity to have when I was younger. And I thought, you know, when I'm an adult making money, and as you saw, not a whole lot during that time frame or managing it appropriately, I was gonna get those things for myself because that's what I associated happiness and success with. And again, a lot of people fall into that trap and it's nothing that there's anything wrong with that. But I think the main thing for me now moving forward is I've, I've had a very unique career, I've been able to experience unique things in this field of you know strength, conditioning, sports, nutrition, and done things as an Indian male In sports, which, I mean, everybody's going to say you have certain demographics that are very rare in sports, but the God's honest truth is the most rare thing, entity in sports is Indians, like hands down. You don't see any Indian athletes. Now you see a lot more females and a lot of diverse uh, backgrounds, but which is great. So for me, being able to share what I've gone through to show like, you know, these younger generations, because Indian people aren't super healthy. Uh, they stray away from sports and they go more into, as you know, (laughs) medicine, medicine, they're, they're all doctors and this and that, but there's probably, you know, thousands and thousands out there that could potentially do something different. Maybe play their hand in sports, maybe get into coaching, something along those lines, but the culture doesn't push us in those directions because parents don't want to see their kids fail because it's very rare that it happens. So if it's not there, Oh, they're destined for failure. So if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you can't go do that because you're going to fail. And then, oh, what are you going to do for a job if you're not a doctor or lawyer or engineer? Uh, what's, I think uh, that.
1: What's your dream car? Like like what, what would be the car that you'd be like, okay, that's my dream car. That's my definition. Uh, like the <laughs> car that like you walk into an NFL training camp and you see the dude pull up and you're like, fuck, that's the one I wanted.
2: Uh, they're going to be multiple. I'd say because of aesthetic and what it did at the time, the first generation r8 the v8 v10 plus like the one that uh robert downey jr pulled up in when he was an iron man the silver one like it it actually it did a whole lot for the audi brand like they were kind of you know midstream german and then they came out with that and they're like oh my god this is what the nsx should have been and what a lot of other supercars should have been i've always loved that now they're not even crazy expensive because 13 years um i mean you know we fantasize about other things like gt2 rs porsches or gt3 rs's you know any any ferrari that they have in their new line or like mclaren the 765 lt or the um the Rimatch, the new hypercar which has 2,000 horsepower it's two million dollars i mean if anybody pulled up in that they're like that's like brady status or something along those lines in terms of what cars oh, yeah. are
1: oh yeah no guys are um what was it um God, well, I forgot the one car. I'm totally blanking on this one. Uh, the supercar, like the Venom one. Uh, that was a million bucks. It was like a million two. And uh, there were dudes pulling up in that one. Man, that's awesome. What were a- they on their second or third contract? No, they were rookies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, what, what about watches? What kind of watches are you into?
2: I had, so when I first got to the NFL, I bought a Speedmaster Professional. And then through a... Um, family member i was able to get a uh submariner a blackface submariner with the uh, cyclops and then recently because of financial things i ended up selling them luckily i got it at a uh sold it for a gain and didn't actually lose money on it but watches i'm not too crazy about i like the old school uh pepsi gmt master twos with the old style bezel oh yeah and then the um, the Rolex Explorer, the Sir Edmund Hillary, and I think uh, Paul Newman had a really awesome Daytona as well. I think I just think they're beautiful. Oh, yeah, like no, I'm not that, flashy. I don't you know don't need crazy bling. I've got tiny wrists, so I can't have anything big on them.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the yeah the Paul Newman's nice. When I was um I think it was my second year when we got our royalties check, uh, one of the older guys was like you got to take that money and buy a watch. So I went and I bought a, I think it was a Rolex Yachtmaster. And then every year I would take my royalty check and just buy a watch. And then I think, like, uh, I went into a watch shop. We were at the Super Bowl. Um, we ended up um, going to the MC Championship game losing. And, but we had still had all of our tickets and everything to go because, you know, you got to treat it like you're going to win because all of a sudden if you win, you got to go the next week. So we just went to, you know, San Diego and stayed in La and there was a watch shop um, I walked into and I was looking at a watch and uh, I met Tony Robbins. Uh, you know, the motivational speaker. Banana hands? Banana hands. Legitimately <laughs> banana hands. That, that's what's funny. People are like, oh, you kind of look like Tony Robbins. I'm like, no, have you ever met Tony Robbins? Because I don't think we look anything alike. That dude's hands were huge, and he like had this huge, like, big agramaglia head. Uh, so when people say that, I'm like, fuck you. Uh, but he had this <laughs> badass Panerai, and um, he was like, dude, these Panerai's are dope. you got to get one. So I ended up buying, like, a Panerai 1950, and then I just got stuck on buying Panerai's. And then when I retired from the NFL, I was like, why the fuck do I have all these watches? I'm not an NFL player anymore. I don't have any reason to wear them on Sunday." So I ended up like getting rid of a bunch of them. And uh, but yeah, it's uh, like there's little status things. At least you know you see guys like uh, Strahan was big into watches. Every time I saw Stray, he'd be like, "Come check this out. Let me see this." Even when I saw him at the uh, Hall of Fame for Tony's deal, he was like, "What watch are you wearing?" I'm like, "No watch. What are you wearing?" And he showed me some crazy fucking thing he has. But um, those status symbols, man. Like when you're younger. And I think you make a great point. I appreciate this on your Instagram. When you're younger, you think those things are so impactful, and then as you get a little bit older, you're like, it just feels like a lot of stuff. And I wonder, like, where that transition is, or at least for you.
2: I think you know when you when you go through a lot of different things and you see a lot of different things. From when I was at Oregon, I was coming out of my fixed mindset stage, where it's not all about winning because I had you know we had success in Michigan State you know we ended up going to the rose bowl winning that no one really thought we would i uh, it was this crazy experience to me the next year was a cotton bowl and then going to oregon first year it was winning the pac-12 and going to the rose bowl and then a national championship so when when you're a part of something that and you mentioned this before when you're winning you don't necessarily question anything you're long for the ride and you think you're the hottest shit since you know sliced bread and what you're doing is really impactful but when you kind of step back and, and look at everything holistically it's like man i'm just a tiny piece in the cog i just Glad I didn't fuck it up. But when you get to that opposite side and things don't go your way, so the next year after that, we went to the Alamo Bowl. And if you guys remember this, we were up 31-0 at halftime. And we lost that game. Who'd you and put? Was it Texas? It was TCU.
0: TCU, okay.
2: It was like triple overtime, the craziest thing. And yep. I remember coming out of halftime, seeing their team and then seeing our team, and then starting the middle of the third quarter, like we just couldn't sustain drives. And they were scoring. I'm like, we're not going to be able to score stop them from scoring and we might lose this game. And it's one of those slow train wrecks. You kind of just watch and can't do anything about it. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened going into the next year where everything kind of just, you know, fell off the rails. We ended up starting Justin Herbert as quarterback and we all recognized early on in that previous summer, like this kid is special. And lo and behold, like rookie of the year, phenomenal kid. I hope he does really well. Uh, he's, He's awesome the team goes to so three and nine and four and eight and the whole staff gets fired. And then you start seeing things like, and that was around the time where um, you know, Mike Sadler had passed away. Uh, Mylon Hicks, you know, two players that I worked with at Michigan state, just, you know, accidents and things that that happened. And then, you know, a couple Oregon players passed away. It starts putting perspective on, you know, let me think about what I want to try to achieve in life and what's important. You know, is it, wins is it losses or is it the impact i can make with the people that i'm around and i touch can i improve their lives can i make a difference to other people that i might not have a direct connection with because now in the social media generation when you put something out there you might not recognize it but now if i won i can have a tweet go viral and it can get a million views and that's crazy to think about like putting my thoughts on an app and it resounding so strongly so when i put that post yesterday i didn't know how it was going to going to go over I'm like well maybe I hope this can shed some light on things that I did wrong for 7 years and now fortunately if I hadn't worked in the NFL and transitioned to becoming more invested minded I wouldn't be you know financially in a better place than I was before and luckily that actually reverberated really strongly with a lot of people so I'm I'm glad that ended up happening but then some other people might you know anything you put out there is going to be open to interpretation from good people and bad people fuck it whatever Someone could be like, oh, this motherfucker only wants to talk about working in the NFL. I'm like, and how much he made. I'm like, Look, there were people that made a lot more than me in my position. There are people that make less than me. I have friends that Did now- you get
1: that feedback? Did, uh, did I mean, was that feedback actually came to you? Because as I was looking at it, I was like, man, I didn't know that uh, these strength coaches and these guys pay- got paid this little. I thought that for some reason they got paid I thought paid from more the athlete money.
2: perspective, it would be very uh, eye-opening because yeah. you know when you're, when you're bumping shoulders with everybody – and, you know, I never asked what guys make or what their checks were like, but you just see, like, oh, he signed for this, this, and this. Or guys like, hey, I'm on the minimum. And you, you know what those are. You know what practice squad is. Yeah. I think <laughs> the players definitely think that staff make a lot more than they actually do. Uh, and dude, when they I actually uh, start seeing these figures. Uh, they're, they're like <laughs> appalled. I'm like, uh, dude, yeah, it fucking suck sometimes.
1: <laughs> I saw the money and I was like, man, I, I thought that these guys would be making more money. So when you said that, I was like, fuck, I can't believe it. But, uh, like, it's the same reason that um you know Conor McGregor posted that picture Did you see he had like a Lamborghini yacht built that was like yeah, I heard about it 150 it's all black like it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen like it would like they they were pulling it out on this like trailer it like it looks like it's shaped like a black bullet like it it's the fucking craziest looking yacht I've ever seen like if you saw that thing on the water you'd think like Darth Vader's coming at you and he like posted a picture and like that's a level of dough that I, like <laughs> like it, you know like there's a few people will ever have a custom one-off built Lamborghini yacht that's like a hundred feet long. I mean, it was incredible. But like the the comments, I i like there were thirty six thousand comments. I only clicked a few of them because I didn't want to waste all my time. But it was everything from like fuck to like you know you you could be doing this. And I you know Charles and I who who's our producer, we were talking about this the other day where um like people were like attacking Besos like uh, he could solve world hunger but he chose to go to space. And I'm like. The guy's a billionaire. He can he can do whatever he wants. He like think about how many people he employed with his space program. Think about yeah. you know how many people Amazon employs and think about the jobs and the ancillary businesses the second third quarter effect. And I'm like, and the guy's worked his ass off. If he wants to fucking shoot himself in a space in a, a in a, a spaceship that looks like a big dick, which is hilarious <laughs> because it's a similar shape for Dr. Evil for yeah. his space thing, mm-hmm. which I think is the world's best troll. Like the fact that Jeff Bezos is like Looks looks good. Make it look like a penis. Like uh, I fuck. I like, Is that what he did? Uh, I, he, he had to. So he had um, to. No.
2: You look at it. For every guy that's seen it, you, it's exactly like that's a dick.
1: It. Yeah. But uh, it, like from Doctor Evil in yeah. the Austin Powers when he shot up to try to put his moon base. It's the same shape, dude. Pull it up. Like I know. I, I I've seen the it. memes. I uh, I love it. I think it's like the world's best troll, and he's probably like fuck all you people. It's gonna look like a dick. And um, you know what? He's earned it. He's uh, he's busted his ass, and you can say whatever he wants. But it's like professional athletes; uh, same deal. Uh, they earn the money. They can do whatever they want with it. The problem, though, is if they don't learn any fiscal responsibility in that young age, all of a sudden, two years later, they're broke. And it's because all of a sudden, you you know, unfortunately, most people will live up to their means. Like if you make a hundred grand, I'll spend hundred grand, or I'll live on hundred grand. If you make 10 million, all of a sudden now my life goes up 10 million. And it was a very rare player that I met that was like, Hey, I'm just going to live at this level regardless of what I make. And don't even show me that stuff. So it's good that you figured that thing out a lot quicker. Because unfortunately, I think most NFL players, most professional athletes don't figure it out until about two years after retirement when their financial guy calls them and goes, Fuck, I can't send you any more dough.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I see these rookies, they sign on, you know, first round guys, they get a decent amount of guaranteed money. But if you're not, you know, a top 10 pick, it's like, All right, well, there is diminishing returns with the amount that you're going to end up getting if you get picked in the later of the flatter of the first round you know one guy came through and he had just this arsenal of jewelry it was diamond necklace four or five of them fully studded diamond watch bought a lamborghini two other cars something for his mom i'm like dude this is your first check you gotta you gotta realize like if you don't have investments on the side i think he bought a uh a residence, like maybe a high rise condo or something very expensive. I'm like, once your money's gone? Plus taxes. You don't even think about that. Plus, you know, you're paying your agent and everybody else in your entourage and you're taking care of them. I'm like, you can do whatever you want with your money, but there's a lot of guys now in the locker room that are older guys that have played eight, nine, 10 years that are trying to teach these younger guys about um, being financially responsible, generating, you know, wealth from multiple streams, you know, guys like uh, it was Mike Thomas and Russell Shepard, who now has his own business in Houston, which is awesome. Um, they're trying to advocate for these guys, but at the end of the day, like, you know, kid's gonna do
1: what he wants to do with his money. Sure, man, he's a grown man, he can do it. And that, and maybe the NIL deal, um, you know, with the college guys, you know, owning and branding stuff, maybe it gives these guys an opportunity, uh, younger to be taught this lesson. Maybe, uh, you know, all of a sudden instead of once they get to the NFL when they're 22, 23, 24, 25 and making these errors, maybe they make them at 18, 19, and 20. Uh, like, well,
0: hopefully not at the cost of their professional opportunity.
1: Well, like that's, that's the hard part. Like, um, you know, when's the right time to learn a lesson? Did you ever hear this one? No. Right now. Like, it's, like, I don't want to learn a lesson. Like, if I need to learn the lesson today, don't teach it to me tomorrow. Like, learn the lesson that you need. Like, and you know, like, my, my dad used to say, like, what's the lesson you need to learn? I'm like, I don't know, he's like the one that teaches you today. So I think a lot of this stuff, if this is a lesson that needs to be learned and the opportunity to teach him younger, then teach it to him today. Uh, the problem is, is um, I think the, I, like, there's no way when I was 18 years old I would be mentally able to handle that. But maybe social media, Like, this, like I actually just read about this, that because of social media, um, there's kind of like, I don't know, maybe uh, kids are growing up, not necessarily faster, but just exposed to so much more than we were. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe that piece of it that, you know, now these kids are gonna be in this fight, they're gonna be dealing with agents, branding, and all the other stuff that they, you know, maybe, who knows, and hopefully their parents are switched on enough to help them, shepherd them through this. But, you know, for the most part, haven't played in the NFL on that, that's really not, not going to be the case. So scary times, dude. It's scary, scary times. So what's uh what's on the horizon? So you're, you're working with athletes, but, like, what's the, uh, what's the end goal? What's the bigger picture? What's the plan?
2: Yeah, I think right now it's still in the developmental stages of finding that out, you know, 36. And I think the good thing about learning from a lot of different people in a lot of different fields since I ended up leaving the NFL is – you know you don't have to have everything figured out so it wasn't going to be this illustrious 40 year career with the same organization because of just what modern day sport is and that's not necessarily what i wanted because i was out of place for three or four years did whatever i could did unique things try to put my spin on it leave it better than what i found it and then get a chance to to tackle on the ne- take on the next challenge and see you know it's bigger responsibilities bigger roles and i was able to do that at four different spots which is great but now with a unique skill set of knowledge, I'd love to give back not only to the field, but try to fill in these gaps of what's not necessarily available to the, the younger group of athletes. So you have millions of middle school, high school athletes. They're at all different stages, all different places all over the country. And you have, you know, coaches of varying levels that are working with them. Some have access to strength and conditioning, some don't. Most aren't really following anything nutritionally, but can benefit from just learning about how to take care of themselves from a credible source. Like you have resources out there, but does it actually speak to exactly what they need at the level that they can understand it and get the parents and coaches involved? So there's something potential with that. So I'm working with a small group of local high school and middle school athletes You know, that have parents that are very wealthy and can actually help facilitate and support some of these projects. Um, Another thing is just, again, creating an online network where there's, there's plenty of strength and conditioning resources out there. So that's not necessarily the goal it's integrating, not only just nutrition, but these, these different things that I've been in charge of that connect all these roles together to explain, like, how can you integrate nutrition, stress management, and all these different resources as a practitioner with your athletes. So athletes being exposed to it, but also these different groups that might not be maximizing their abilities, but they have staff in place. So there's always ways to continue to put out information and resources to be able to touch on that. And then the whole, as as you've experienced, the whole sports dietetics profession is is very young with its implementation directly with team sports. And you can't learn to be an expert in this, quote unquote expert or knowledgeable until you leave and you start working in these situations one-on-one. And you understand like every place is different. There's different levels of resources and buy-in and you have to learn to speak the language of not only the players, but also everybody you work with. So these roles aren't very similar to what I was able to do. You have a very small handful of people that have full autonomy to really like, all right, I'm going to be in charge of all the blood biomarkers. I'm in charge of sleep assessment. I'm going to be in charge of putting together the recovery platform. I'm going to be in charge of, you know, doing all the the prehab stuff and warm ups, and then coaching and then taking care of all the individual nutrition needs based on everything that we have going around. And right now it's moving more towards – like a food service aspect of nutrition of like, Oh, we hire somebody and they take care of what the meals we have and post game and making sure the locker room is stocked and, and this and that, and more so on the college front, but it's, it's trickling into the, the professional setting. So people aren't getting a chance to maximize what they can provide in terms of value because they haven't been exposed to a GMs and ADs and coaches don't know what to hire. So showing them like, look, you can hire somebody for this role and getting a lot of value out of it. Not just you know, oh, it's the nutrition who deals with food service. It's like, look, this person can work really closely with your strength staff, and work really closely with your data management, and work really closely with your medical staff. Because as you know, you know how important nutrition is, like more yeah. than most professional athletes.
1: If no, you get somebody
2: was, in the yeah. right frame of mind to really connect those dots, it can be a valuable addition to a team. Again, it, it, it's going to take time to build that out.
1: Well, I also, uh, for me, like I was, um, I mean, obviously I got to play a long time, but um, I think there were people that were a lot more gifted than me, and there were things that people could do that I couldn't, and so I had to err on the side of this other thing. So, you know, like my training and all the stuff I did. And then the interesting part is um, I never got an off-season workout deal on any of the teams. So because of that, um, I was like, well, if you're not going to pay me to be here, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find the world's best and work with the best people I can, and every year they'd be like, oh, so-and-so made 90% of their workouts. You didn't make any. And I'd be like, all right, well, let's show up and run the conditioning test. Let's do our, our initial training. And then I would fucking smash them and then go in and start and be like, like you don't have to train at the facility. You don't need my hand being held. And if you wanted to hold my hand, then write me a check and I'll stay here. And um, that was a, a big gripe that I had. But then when I asked them for it, every year I'd be like, can I get an off-season workout bonus? They're like, no. I'm like, well, then fuck you. I'm leaving. And uh, it was just a really strange, like, fuck. Uh, I battled with that but um, it's like for me uh, like my margin of error had to be very small like I had to make sure all that stuff because I just wasn't I mean dude I played with guys that were six eight, you know 350 pounds and were like you know big basketball players and were just so gifted I'm like I'm like a try hard white dude who's basically trying to like knock down all these pins so I can stay here for as long as I can and um, that was just who I was and I realized that early on I made no illusions like uh, you know so I think if like guys can get a dose of reality pretty early, then you gotta figure out exactly who you are. I remember um, I came in and started as a rookie, but uh, they were showing me tape on like uh, all these dudes who were like six, eight, 350 pound black dudes. And I remember finally asking the coach, I'm like, you got any like six foot five, 300 pound white dudes you can show me video on? And he's like, why? I'm like, well dude, like these guys have a skill set I don't have. Do you have anybody that kind of looks like me? So then he showed me like Jim Lachey and um, he was showing me, uh, like Gary Zimmerman and uh, God, um, uh, Jumbo Elliott, and all these different like uh, you know guys who were about my size, and I was like, all right, that's how they did the job. That's how I'll do the job. And you would have thought that I fucking brought fire to a caveman, where the coach was like, really? You know, you just can't look at anybody, and I'm like, nah, you guys are fucking morons. Show me somebody that looks like me. And so, uh, like that stuff becomes uber important. Uh, the one thing, though, the question that I, I wanted to hit you with because I'm so fascinated on this: uh, what is the big draw, and more importantly, how do you manage this uh, with guys deciding to want to try to be vegan professional football players? I mean, I know like um, you know the largest uh, demographic of vegans in the world is in India. Um, the doctor I was with was uh, Punjabi; he's he was vegan. Um, and we were discussing it, but like, you know, there was this really interesting and, and, uh, Tony Gonzalez tried it, which was a fucking terrible thing on his part. Um, but that kind of strain and we saw it in game changers, like what's your take? And more importantly, how do you manage that? Yeah. And
2: it, it's tough because you now have a, a higher percentage of guys that are trying it and more interested in it because there's this, this is an association with watching something like game changers or an article in the media is, you know, it's easy to sensationalize and cherry pick studies to prove your position. And that's the tough thing about nutrition is you can legitimately find a study to prove your position that disproves another one. And then they can do the same thing on their end, which makes, you know, the nutritional dogma, something that's never really going to go away because people are going to pick sides and they're going to hold on to it as much as possible. And then they're going to throw shit at the other side too. And, you know, those Netflix documentaries don't necessarily help because these guys are more engaged with Streaming, phones, things that they have instant access to. So if they read an article and it cherry picks the information to say, oh, if you don't go vegan, you know, these things are meat is bad. It increases your risk for X, Y, and Z. Well, yeah, you can mitigate that by eating fruits and vegetables. Duh. Everybody should be fucking doing that. But then they think this is the way to go. So they have a very shit diet to begin with, eating a lot of ultra processed foods, drinking a lot of alcohol, sleeping like dog shit, not really supplementing the appropriate micronutrients that they're missing out in their diet. So they end up like, oh, I'm going to eat a lot more fruits and vegetables. I'm going to eat a lot more beans. I'm going to, oh, I can't have, you know, fried chicken. I can't have these processed foods. I'm not going to have, you know, meat out of a carton. I'm not going to go get, you know, burgers and fries and whatnot. So now I'm eating less ultra processed foods, which obviously is what you should be doing to begin with. So you start feeling better. So then you automatically have this association with, oh man, I I feel so much better. You know, my joints are, I lost a little bit of weight. And then you don't necessarily realize like, you could have changed your initial habits to be doing the things that everybody's recommending you do and you would automatically feel better, but then you won't be missing out on the adequate amount of protein, B vitamins, creatine, you know, essential fatty acids, zinc, X, Y, and Z, which now you have to supplement with if you're not gonna be able to get it in a vegan diet. So at the tail end of my time with the Giants, a lot more guys were starting to do it to the point where it was about you know 10% of the team where we'd have to set aside specific things for them. And again, my goal isn't to change their mind and say, you're doing it wrong. My goal is like, all right, tell me what it is you're doing. Let's figure out what you might potentially be missing by not eating animal sources. And if you wanna supplement with it, this is the reason why I think you should, and this is how you're gonna do it, what do you think? And a lot of the guys are very open to it, which is great. Uh, same thing, I remember one of, one of the D linemen came to me, was like, yeah, me and my girl wanna go on a vegan diet. What do I do? I'm like, okay tell me the foods that you do plan on eating and tell me what from a plant based perspective, you're not going to eat. So you can do a vegan diet wrong. (laughs) You could eat cereal all day, you know, and some almond milk and that's a fucking vegan diet, not to say it's good for you. And you're going to see great results. So, you know, we assessed him and I'm like, these are all the things that you're missing because you said you're not going to try to get it from food. And I sent him home with a bag of supplements. I'm like, this is ridiculous.
1: Well, I, I mean, uh, just the basic understanding, and this is where I think uh, so much of it gets lost, is like, let's get into like the basic physiology. How do you put on muscle? It's impossible to, or next to impossible, to put on muscle in a low-protein environment. So like, all right, where are you going to get your protein at? Uh, we know that like nutrient density that, you know, you're going to have to get, you know, let's say five, 600 grams of pea protein to equal what I can get in two or 300 grams within animal-based, you know, like a steak, for example. I mean, just in terms of like vitamins. I mean, so, okay, so are you you ready to do X, Y, and Z to almost like, uh, and I I hate the word hack, um, because whenever somebody says they're hacking something, it's usually they're hacks themselves. Uh, Like, um, I'm hacking health, or I'm a biohacker. Um, But like, there's a way into it. And they did it in the Game Changers. They showed bodybuilders that were vegan. But then if you go back and you look at the amount of protein that those guys are consuming from like, uh, you know, pea protein and hemp protein and all that, it's like... 20 shakes a day of, like, 50 to 75 grams. Like, the amount of, like, (laughs) protein these guys are consuming, like, the smell must just be incredible around those dudes. must be, like, fucking not, you know, toxic. Um, So, like, that piece of, like, hey, like, do you want to, you know, you can do this, but, like, this is how you do it because these are the non-negotiables. If you want to recover, if you want to play at a high level, you want to put on muscle, you want to feel better, like, all that happens in a high-protein environment. I've yet to seen anybody put on, you know, gobs of thick muscle in a low protein environment regardless of how many vegetables and carbs they eat. It just doesn't happen. I mean, but then on the other side, you get guys, and I'm sure you've seen this, like, oh, I want to go on a low carb diet. You're like, why? Oh, I want to get ripped. I'm like, okay, do you really think that like there's a direct relationship between carbohydrates and being fat for middle America? I'm, I'm sure you, you've dealt with this too, and you're like, well, the leaner you are, the more carbs you can handle. If you're 30% body fat, you probably don't get any carbs. If you're 10%, I mean, shit, I've been around, uh, you know, dudes that were, you know, 7 8% body fat, eating 500 grams of carbohydrates a day, and they were fucking shredded. Mm. So, like, it, it's pretty interesting, and I wonder, um, and I'm sure you've, you've attacked it, and probably most guys' fucking eyes roll back, they don't want to hear this stuff, but, like, almost taking it from that, like, like let's explain this from the ground level, almost like uh, like I do to my kids, um, Where does muscle come from? And you were talking about eccentric loads, right? So you got eccentric, concentric, isometric. Isometrics develop stability. And you kind of like break all these pieces down, and then you present them the pieces. And you're like, okay, if this is what we need, does that fit the narrative and what you're giving back? And we do this on this podcast. I do it with context or uh, um, uh, consultations all the time. Like, all right, here's your goal. This is what you want to do. Let me show you the pieces to get there, and does this make sense? And then you make people make a good decision. So I always wonder, because I've had uh, you know professional athletes hit me up about it. I'm like, I think you could do a vegan diet. Would I want to do it? No. Just for the mere fact that uh, I just think it's a failure. And more importantly, I don't think it works. But if you want to do it for whatever reason, ethical reasons, whatever, even though I can show you the ethics is bullshit, if it's a religious deal, it's different. But um, that's uh, it, it, it's amazing that guys are so, and this has always blown my mind, one fucking tinted documentary on on netflix and all of a sudden you got all these uh, professional athletes wanting to abandon meat. i'm like i'm like do you do you realize you're being manipulated so i um i can't imagine having to go in and fight that fight that, that you were doing no
2: i like how you broke that down because i remember there was one conversation i had in our our dining room with a player who just asked about it's like hey can you explain you know should i go on a vegan diet or should i not and you know i'm like all right well, what are your thought process behind it you're like well i heard so-and-so is doing it you know is it good for athletes is it not so what i did was kind of broke it down i'm like all right these are, these are the demands of of you as a football player you know bioenergetically when you're practicing when you're lifting so there are needs for these specific macronutrients so you need protein for you know breaking it down f- to, for their uh, understanding is to build muscle and to replenish muscle replenish your amino acid pool you need carbs because stores in muscles glycogen when you're training two two and a half hours especially during padded conditions that's what increases energy expenditure, you know? And then fat's important for insulation, decreasing inflammation, blah, 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 X, Y, and Z. So when we work backwards and figure out what are the best sources, if you don't have an allergy or you don't have a ethical religious rele- reason, you know, as some Indians do, yeah. is, all right, what's gonna provide us with the best quality of protein? Oh, animal sources, because there are nine 10 essential amino acids that the body can't make, so you gotta eat it. The body, if, it, if you don't eat it, you're gonna break down muscle tissue. Is that what you want to have happen? No. All right. So you have to have an adequate amount. There's a certain threshold you want to hit, you know, f- overall per day. But, you know, timing. Yes, is important too as an athlete, because these guys are all over the place and not very consistent. So breaking it down, like, OK, what are some of the best animal sources? I will right, well, definitely love, you know, steak and beef, uh, chicken, fish, salmon, eggs. You know, if you need a convenience, weigh protein. And then if you, you know, you can get them in plant-based sources, not to say that you have to completely ignore that because beans and things of that nature can be really powerful with feeding the gut microbiome. And then, so that takes care of protein. What about carbohydrates? Sorry, these are the best sources. These are the opportune times you wanna eat it. When you're training, uh, training volume increases, we increase carbs. When you're on your rest day, we taper back, you know, depending on what the entire week looks like and how we periodize it. And then it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, like, why do they keep saying bad stuff about meat? I'm like, well, if I, if I was selling you Nike products and I wanted you to buy Nike products, would I make a commercial about Adidas and how good it was? Or would I say, you know, I don't like them? Oh yeah, you'd, you'd pump your own stuff and you'd dump them down. Like, that's exactly what happens when these people have a financial stake with what they create. They're not gonna talk about the other side. Like if we're doing promos for the Giants players, we're not gonna talk about how much we love the fucking Cowboys. No, we're gonna talk about how much, you know, whatever they suck, they even won a Super Bowl and. However many years, and Giants have won two since then. The worst. And there Cowboys fans are in the you. worst.
1: <laughs> the worst. Well, uh, dude, we used to go up and beat up on the – cow? We, well, I probably can't say cowgirls now, which is how we refer to them. But we used to go curb stomp those dudes. And uh, it's funny, now living in Texas, it's like uh, like people start talking. I'm like uh, – like.
0: Well, it's not just Texas. So I lived East Coast for a bit and then would run into Cowboys fans. So I'm a Houstonian and then would ask them like, oh, you're from Dallas. No? Oh, Texas? no they just liked it you know so i could never understand how they got into that
1: dude i've I've met people that never been to philly and are huge philly fans i've met people that were like you know i'm
0: just so much a homer i didn't like it
1: yeah uh well i mean yeah
0: houston sucks i'm just used to losing a bitter (laughs) bitter bitter fan
2: Uh, oh it's gonna be a rough year for houston who knows
1: what they're gonna do? decade rough decade did, uh um I mean, like, I'm, I'm trying to think of the different players that went vegan. Like, wasn't it... um uh, Well, um, I mean, Chris Arian Paul, Foster?
0: Arian Foster, Chris Paul, and then Kenny Stills was, yeah. he was on the Dolphins, Texans. I don't know where he is now, but...
1: Well, what's amazing is, uh you know, like, the whole, like, get woke, go broke, go vegan, fucking get hurt. Like, that was, uh, it, you know, all of a sudden these guys came out and be like, oh, I'm going vegan, and all of a sudden you see them get hit and they just shatter. Oh,
0: Arakpo, he's a UT guy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, all those guys ended up having problems, so... I just, I, I never saw, uh, I never equated the vegan diet with durability. And so uh, it just was amazing that guys kind of got sucked into that. And I'm like, ah, but if you don't believe anything, you fall for anything. All that whole deal. So,
0: uh, I got, Tika, I got some quick questions, man, from the coaches' professional development. Like you had an awesome position and opportunities and crushed it. But there's a lot of coaches out there that are getting their ass kicked and you know taking grad assistantships or just taking internships and they have their master's degrees already and just getting their ass kicked financially uh emotionally they can't afford to have families or do anything like what is the is the future of this profession screwed or the things that need to change from your perspective or is it just part of the grind
2: it's hard to say and you know this is something that does get talked about quite a bit and i've had multiple conversations about it like how do you fix it and You know, I might not be the person that has the solution or answer. I can only provide thoughts on my thoughts on it. It's when you have a field of people that are so passionate about what they do or what they want to do, and you only have X amount of great paying gigs. And the realization is everybody thinks then feels they have to start somewhere. So you pay your dues, you know, you work these insane hours you know, sleeping in the weight room or on floors or X, Y, and Z to be able to have that opportunity to be connected to somebody. So really in this field, it's all about who, you know, in any field, really it's when you have these job postings that come about, or, you know, somebody's moving on and there's an opening and they more often than not, that job's already filled. Like there's somebody that someone has in mind and they're like, Hey, we're just going to post this because HR says we have to, but we already know who we're going to interview. We already know who we're going to hire. And, you know, there's two reasons for that one. Familiarity is is helpful and it's comfortable. So if you have this staff that's put in place and you know who you work with and you know who you can trust, you're not just gonna take a shot on somebody you don't know even though the resume looks good. You know, Again, even if you have a great resume, you could end up being a horrible fit. So it's not necessarily who has the most experience or who has the best credentials, it's what is that group need or what kind of rounds it out. So that's kind of like the best way to look at it instead of hiring somebody who thinks like you and looks like you, which happens all too often. I had another post that says, you know, diversity in America where everybody looks different, but still thinks the same. Um, But it's really tough because now you have these positions that are full time at 20 or 30 K and you're going to end up working 60 hours. You might get benefits. You might not. And you're legitimately making $9 an hour or less. Like you're an intern working full time to the point where we now are at the point, this day and age with social media where you can build a brand like I've, I've taken on clients and i haven't even set up my website you know luckily twitter and and you know having some experience in the field helps quite a bit but it's not the only way to do it where if you really are into coaching but you don't want to work that grind and it's, it's going to be a very steep process to get to where you want because everybody says they want to work in the nfl or with the pros and i'm like why you know <laughs> The higher up you go, the less of a difference you're gonna end up making. It's just all about, like I said, the title, the notoriety, the chance at you know, hopefully making six figures, but most of the strength coaches that are in big power five schools make the most at the college level, as opposed to the professional level. Which Dude, of some of those college strength that, coaches
1: are, are making like seven figures. I mean, I think those guys are making some big dough on those college, I mean, way more than the NFL strength coaches are. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to go for some of those big jobs. Well, oh, that's football go. only,
0: but then there's football guys. And then there's not.
1: What does that mean? What do you mean football guys in not? Oh, like at the universe? Oh, yeah, so looking
0: for foot? You're a football guy. I mean, like, oh, you're yeah. freaking big. You can bark. You you maybe play football. Shaved,
1: you have a shaved head and a goatee?
0: It's not a shaved head. It's bald, John. Uh,
1: bald and goatee. Yeah, Yeah. there's a
0: hair bias at the college <laughs> level.
1: Yeah, you're wider dressed. than
2: you are tall. You tuck your shirt in. You definitely uh, don't look anything like a guy like me. <laughs>
1: Performance polo with your, you know, like... In, with, polo. Yeah, you got to wear your performance polo, shaped head, or sorry, bald head goatee. Bike shorts. <laughs> uh, they should bring those back. Uh, but okay. I, I also think that head coaches and coaches should have to wear the football uniform on I, the sideline the same way. Okay. Well, yeah,
0: I'm like a baseball manager. Uh, 100%. I think they should I do want the... see,
1: I want to see Andy Reid in spandex.
0: I think they I should do the conditioning test.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, I've told you my definition of coach, right? guy that stands around yelling at me while I work in the, in the heat and the sun. That was why when people started calling me like, hey coach, I'd be like, I'd kind of like shimmy a little. And they're like, why? I'm like, because usually a coach is a dude who was screaming at me while I was busting my ass and he was standing around. And, uh, and then they give you a little bit of hustle from, from drill to drill. But yeah, I've since rescinded on that one, but I always had a lot of just like, fuck you. You know, we're out here in 100 degree heat killing ourselves and you guys are over here screaming at us. Get out there. Go, go bust your ass. They should do the conditioning test. I'm in. Yeah, that's my bias. Yeah. So, what else you got? Oh,
0: that's it, man. This is awesome. Uh, any Brett Bartholomew dirt that we can oh, uh, playfully yeah. kick around?
2: Ooh. Well, Who's uh, taller? I first uh, met uh, Brett.
1: So did he have a, a beard? Who's taller, you or Brett? I am. No, I mean, well, uh, I know you are. What about you? No. I don't have an answer for this. <laughs> are are you guys like
0: fucking eye to eye tip? We're to tip? beard versus hair, all of our conversations.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh dude, we're like the we had him on opposite the podcast. side of the same coins. We, we had him on the podcast when I met him. I was like, man, I thought you were like six foot five with that voice and that beard.
0: No. No the opposite. Uh but no man, he's he's great. You no, know, um, he's fuck.
1: We like to bust his balls.
0: But yeah, did he have a beard when you met him?
2: No. So <laughs> he will kill me for this. So back then, this was like, what, 2003, 2004. So, you know, decent amount of time. And that's when everybody wore like Hollister and X, Y, and Z. So in Manhattan, Kansas, you didn't have very many stores to choose from. So it was back in like the cuff days and everybody wore those necklaces. So he had a, I think he had a puka shell necklace that he wore for a few years. I still, I still give him shit for for it every time I uh, connect with him. And then I remember when he was rushing or his first year, we had a couple of our new guys and both of them had like loud systems and i think brett had one in his blazer he had like this two-door black blazer and he had like this the subwoofer off with one of our other guys and brett's a huge uh you know like eminem 50 cent fan so that's what he was bumping and i always i it's one thing that i definitely remember about him back in the days i would always associate him with rap music in 50 and
1: that's something that we had in common too i can't be mad at him about that i mean to have a blazer with some 15s in the back you know bumping but well
0: to our listeners teak we offer up spotify playlists from all of our guests Mm. so we'll be we'll be hitting you up for that so if if we want to if our listeners want to poke it up we'll uh we'll put it in the show notes
1: dude uh i'm a fan of all uh gangster rap and all that stuff i mean the the stuff i hear now i'm like uh but i also wonder if that's just me or if it's just crappy do you have any no, music I'm with theory you, but you know yeah.
2: still listen to it just to be relevant and connect with these modern day kids just to yeah. you know, one one talking point be like oh did you listen to that new little baby yeah i listened to it uh,
0: do you try to introduce no like fame. your favorite to these guys and get their take
2: no they i listen to everything like legitimately you know old school r b uh 80s rock because it reminds me of high school and football and me getting into lifting yep. um you know EDM, dance music, hip hop, country because I went to K State, so that'll always be with me. So I got a little bit of everything.
1: No, I mean I still drive around with my kids in the car listening to like a '80s gangster rap. <laughs> I mean it's it's like a NWA, Ice Cube, uh, Eazy-E. I and, I have... uh, and and then I, I I say funny shit to them and they're like, Dad, we listen to him like. Uh, or I, I made a comment to him the other day. I'm like, um, I, they asked me a question. I'm like, because I'm not a punk bitch. And so my daughter came home and she's like, Dad, you know, Dad told me he's not a punk bitch. My looked at me. I'm like, ah, uh, you know, we live here in Texas. I grew up in LA. I'm like, I'm trying to give him a little bit of, well, I think a it's little a, bit
0: of street. Have you seen infomercials for like those kids pop covers? And they get kids singing popular top forty yeah, songs. Yeah,
1: it's called uh, Kids Pop or yeah, ki- Kids Bop, and it's Kids Bop. Yeah, it's a channel on. Well,
0: I uh, think it's hilarious if they're singing like, uh, "What's his What's his face?" Like, I can't feel my face. The dude that played at the Super Bowl. Yeah, uh,
1: the, weekend. the weekend. The weekend,
0: and then so like you get these kids singing this song about freaking like cocaine and stuff. I think <laughs> just that's hilarious. There needs to be more of that.
1: Uh, yeah, no, uh, there does. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan. I think it's great. I, I think the weekend was great. The guy was like that whole thing he had going at the Super Bowl. I'm still trying to figure out what the fuck he was doing. Like, lost. There were people dressed like him. I'm watching this and being like, Shoo, went right over my head. I don't know. It's a meme now. It's funny. I yeah, suppose. I'm like, I thought they had like Bruno Mars at every like Super Bowl. We got to play it safe. He was safe. He was like the safe dude. Like he and Jason Derulo. Like just bring those guys out. You don't even know who that is, do you?
0: No. That's okay. why I'm looking at you in uh, silent.
1: Well, I, I have nine-year-old daughters, and so I try to expose them to like different types of music. And um, yeah, we, we also watch The Voice. Mm. Things that you probably don't watch. So well, Great cool, man. show. Dude, uh, thank you so much for coming on Power Athlete Radio and Great and Connecting. And we're always glad for, you know, Brett Bartholomew, uh, Dirt. I mean, we're probably just going to send him a bunch of puka shell necklaces. He's not even going to know where he's going to get them. But uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio.
0: Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Pratik on Instagram at Pratik X Patel. Until next time, bye